one, I think we play it too safe. I think as women, we want all the answers and we want to know if I do this, what will happen? Guess what? <laughs> the best way to live is live in beta and know that you don't know what the outcome is, but the more risks you take, the better that you're going to be at taking risks. And the more flexible and agile you become mentally, the stronger you're gonna get at just trying. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Michelle Cadero Grant, to our show today. Michelle is the founder and CEO of Lively, a community and brand that inspires people to live passionately and purposefully through experiences and products like bras, bralettes, undies, and more. Michelle grew up with immigrant parents, thinking she wanted to be a doctor or a lawyer. However, her true passion lied in working with product and building brands. At the end of a very long and extremely extremely successful career at brands like Federated and Victoria's Secret, Michelle came to the realization that the $13 billion lingerie category was being dominated by a single brand and had a very narrow point of view. This led her to go out on her own and create Lively with the goal of being a brand that spoke to and reflected real, authentic, everyday women like herself who craved to feel confident and comfortable. Michelle launched Lively in 2016 and has since fostered a network of over 140,000 brand ambassadors and opened four stores. Michelle grew the business from its concept stage to a recent $100 million acquisition in just three years, beating the odds of female-founded companies. During the pandemic, she also managed to not only survive, but achieve record-breaking sales at a time when most retailers are struggling to stay afloat. We'll talk to Michelle about the tactical steps she took leaving her career to build a company she was passionate about, what it takes to build a brand from concept to acquisition, how she built a community of 140,000 ambassadors, and what it takes to live her mission of creating an inclusive product and brand that speaks to authentic and real women. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a pleasure. Yes. And I heard that you are almost in your five-year anniversary, right? With Lively April 1st. I can't believe it. I know. It feels like a day and 10 years at the same this time. Is, <laughs> <laughs> kind of sounds like our life in COVID too, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to jump into it. I'm a big fan of not only your brand, but also the way you've really grown the business and talked about your journey. So I'm really looking forward to jumping into the details of the business today. So on the podcast, we always love to start with your upbringing. I know you're a daughter of immigrants who moved to rural Pennsylvania in their 20s to create a better life for yourself and your siblings. So I'd love to hear more about your childhood and what life was like growing up. Yeah. You know, I'm really fortunate. My parents came from India to finish college here in the United States and they got their first job in New Smithville, Pennsylvania is where I was born and raised. And growing up, I would say I didn't realize it, but I was always trying to feel, look, be like my 
surroundings, which was people that were Pennsylvania Dutch and everyone's last name was like Jones and Smith. But we were the Corderos and the only Indian family pretty much within, you know, a five mile radius. So my upbringing was beautiful. I was loved and taken care of, but I always was striving to belong. I'm curious if that ties into any way your fascination with brands, because I know even from a young age, you love to go to New York City, see the Ralph Lauren icons. Where do you think that fascination for brands came to your childhood and life? Yeah, well, I think, you know, now reflecting back, I don't think I had these epiphanies when I was growing up, but I do felt feel like brand and emblems was a way for me to fit in. So if someone was wearing a certain brand and I saw everyone wearing this brand, I felt like if I wear that brand, I will fit in. And so I think that's where it started. And then I just started loving New York City. I love the energy of New York coming from Pennsylvania. And I just love walking up and down Fifth Avenue in the village and just seeing like how people carried themselves when they wore certain things. And you could just see the confidence oozing when they had this handbag or these shoes. And so I just started to connect those things together as a way to formulate success and confidence. I love that. And it's interesting because you were talking about your upbringing, how you were always trying to belong. And I wonder with Lively, it's all about community before you launch. So it's like making sure people belong and feel comfortable in that human touch seems to be very important for you and your life as well. Absolutely. You know, I didn't really realize it until I was probably around 25 that trying to belong is exhausting. <laughs> and this assumption and perception that we all carry as, as humans that success and acceptance is done through these certain things, especially when it comes to parents and loved ones, you think they want you to do these things to be successful. But when you actually sit down and talk to your loved ones and the people around you, they just actually want you to be happy. <laughs> so in my mid-20s, I sat down and I said, well, what makes me happy? And I didn't know. It didn't like just come. And I realized that what made me happy was fashion and building and creating and also being a part of changing the world in a way where women felt really good about their unique selves. Because I finally realized me being unique is my superhuman power. And like, why doesn't anyone celebrate that? Like, no one celebrated the fact that we were unique and different. Everyone celebrated that we could put on clothes and armor and look all the same. <laughs> exactly. And coming out of college, you talked about being from a traditional immigrant family, right? Uh, same with my family as well. It's like they either want you to be a doctor, lawyer, investment banker. That's where I fell into for a few years. And I know out of college for you, you actually got your first job at Federated Merchandising Group. And you actually talk about how you got that job by being at a job fair you weren't even supposed to be at, right? So you've been hustling for a long time. So I'd love to hear more about that because I think your experience working in fashion, working in the corporate world really allowed you to figure out what was missing, which was lively eventually. So I'd love to hear more about those early days in corporate America for you. Yeah. Again, I didn't realize it at the time, but now looking back, I can see kind of signals towards a life of entrepreneurship. But even when I graduated from college, like I wasn't satisfied with the jobs that I was getting in the Pittsburgh area. And so I went to colleges in the New York area to their job fairs. And that's how I got my first job. But even when I got that first interview, I remember being flown to New York and 
realized, and I'm like, I don't think I stood out. These applicants were incredible. So instead of a thank you letter, I like put together a really cheesy PowerPoint because I just wanted to be like remembered. And I think like in all of my jobs, I always kind of looked for ways to get exposure towards other things. Like even at Federated, I would try to find my way into meetings so I could just hear what other people in the room did. Like I only knew my specialized area, but if I was going to learn and grow and thrive, I needed to understand what the more senior people in adjacent areas of the company did as well. There's little themes like that throughout my career. (laughs) I would say one of the most notable was when I was at VF Corporation, my second job. I reported directly into the president of my area and would go to China with her and travel the world with her and learn so much because I was at the right table. I was in the room. So I know you ended up staying in the corporate world for about 10 years, right? You built a reputation and a network. What do you think was the aha moment where you realized, I want to do a change. I want to do something more entrepreneurial and not pursue the trajectory that you were on at the time. Well, I think it was like looking at the leaders and the bosses, especially the female ones, where they were really not living a balanced life. They were thriving in their careers, but their personal lives were taking a backseat. And I just didn't want to have to choose between being there for my children and my husband or loving my career. Because I knew I loved my job so much, I was going to pick work. (laughs) I needed an environment that supported both. For sure. And when you were looking around, the life you envisioned for yourself didn't exist in the position that you were in. So at this stage, I know you were interested in starting your own company, but you didn't really have a specific idea. So how did you get more clarity about the newfound interests and passions that you were exploring at the time? Yeah, for me, I needed to go work for a startup because I had only worked for big corporations where I got to see a lot of a little. And even though I would try to get exposure across the org, I couldn't see the whole picture. So I like kind of joke and say I crossed 14th Street in New York and went downtown and through friends of friends got introduced to Thrillist Media Group, which was very different from any other place I worked for. It was a men's-based commerce and content company, like beer and burgers and cars. But they were growing during the flash sale environment. And I got to work in a startup that went from you know a couple million dollars to 20 to 60 to 75 and got to see how the business grew, but all facets. Fulfillment, marketing, product development, customer service. I got to see it all in culture inside and outside. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the best things anybody could do, right? If it's, I mean, I did that as well. You come from corporate America. You think you have an understanding of startups, but really being in the heart of one and doing it on someone else's dime while you're learning, I think is one of the best experiences you could go through. And one question I get a lot from our community of listeners is, Doing that transition and making that career switch, did you have a lot of resistance of someone being like, you know, you're a corporate girl. I don't think you can roll and start it because I know I got that. So how did you push through that to get that job? Oh, oh my gosh. (laughs) I started that job wrong in so many ways. Like, first of all, I was still the girl like click clacking stilettos through Soho and like everyone knew when I arrived. And secondly, like I was trying to conform the environment into what I knew and I was comfortable from corporate America, which was a big mistake. So I think I didn't spend enough time just like understanding what I was going into. I came in thinking I knew what they needed and how I was going to fix everything for them. So 
when I finally realized that I was just culture clashing, I just thought about, okay, the fundamentals of corporate America still apply. It's how you apply them that's totally different. And just like simplifying, being more relaxed, listening, and getting more scrappy and living in beta. Like living in beta is something that you do not do in corporate America, but you have to do in startup. Yeah. And I think what better experience than to just jump right in like yourself to learn all this, right? In retrospect, you know, but it's such good advice for anyone looking to get more of that startup experience today. And so you have this great job. You're learning all facets of the business. You're three years in. What was the turning point for you to want to go off and venture off on your own to start Lively? Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things were happening, right? I left Victoria's Secret in 2011. Facebook was in beta. You saw these companies growing at like record paces because you could acquire customers for dollars, a couple dollars. And I, I just knew that like timing wise, this was a moment that you could build a brand and there was resources and open pastures to acquire customers that were going to get filled up like Coachella at some point. <laughs> and so, so that like was really itching at me. And then as well, I just met someone right through my network. I met the CEO and owner of Gelmar International, one of the largest manufacturers for lingerie, specifically Walmart. And he saw the same thing that I saw. He saw a very dated category, lingerie, with $13 billion in the United States alone. And we were both looking at Warby Parker, Harry's, and Casper and saying, like, well, where is this in our category? So he was like, I'm looking for someone to build a brand. And I was like, I'm looking for a supply chain and an investor. And it just happened. <laughs> Wow. Talk about timing. And I think one of the key points from that story is the importance of discussing your idea, right? Like talking to different people, sharing what you're up to, because I do know there's some entrepreneurs that hesitate to share their idea, but I think you would not have met your vendor, right? And your first investor of the company, if you didn't disclose your ideas and what you're passionate about. Exactly. Exactly. And I didn't know it was going to be lively or leisure. I just saw opportunity to build something totally different than what was happening today. At the time, exactly. And so you met with this big manufacturer who ended up becoming your first investor. So looking back at those early days, when did you officially decide to quit and go all in to starting this business? Yeah, so I met him in January of 2015. And my first meeting with him did not go well, by the way. I rarely get sick and I happen to have the flu that oh, day. No. My husband had to like peel me out of bed, dust me off, like throw lipstick and just like push me out the door. And after 10 minutes, he was just like, I don't know about this person because I just like was trying to survive. But I went back for a second meeting and, you know, spent the weekend building and writing a business plan, which I had never done before. It was probably not a very good business plan, but I believed it. And I went in confidently saying like, well, this is what I think. And this is how this is going to go. Nobody even like opened it, I don't think, and read like one number on it. But the fact that I had like confidence and understanding for what I wanted to do, I gained his trust. Then it took us about six months to really like iron out what we wanted to do, earn each other's trust, build a relationship and say, okay, this is how this is going to go. So I remember the day, it was August 3rd, was my 35th birthday. And I got the round of funding at Chase Bank and walked out of Chase Bank and was like, okay, so I guess I'm doing this. I had quit my job that Friday and started that Monday. 
Oh my gosh, such a quick turnaround. And it's funny when you put things in motion, sometimes the momentum kind of builds up faster than you expected. You're like, oh shit, this is happening. I'm going, right? Yes. And honestly, like when I look back, I kept telling everyone that I was doing this. I think it was more so so that I would do it. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. You just got to say it out loud and like set the expectation so that you get out there and start meeting it. Yeah. And it's kind of could be a good accountability tool for you also. And I know one thing that you mentioned, which I thought was really fascinating in another interview is that when you started your company, you grabbed your notebook and you wrote a list of everything you didn't know, or you did know. And then with all the stuff you didn't know, you reached out to people. I would love for you to talk more about that because I think when you're starting a business, it could seem very overwhelming and you feel like you have to know all the answers when it's just nonstop questions. So I'd love to hear how you dealt with that uncertainty starting out in the business. Yeah. Yeah. It was August 4th, <laughs> the second day of work at Lively. And I realized I did not know a lot about digital marketing, yet I was starting a digitally native company. And I didn't know anything about fulfillment or customer service. And so I was not going to hire people for all of these things. I just needed people that I could go to. So started like tapping LinkedIn and my network and calling people and saying like, let's get a juice. What's your favorite coffee? Is it lunch? Is it a workout? Share my idea and say now, like, if I call you, can you help advise me? I'm like steps to go. And of course, everyone said yes, right? Because they care about you. And it's just as simple as knowing where you should go when that problem arises or that like obstacle is needed to be faced. Like, you know where to go. That's all I needed. Yeah. And I think it's very comforting. There's something like in your subconscious, knowing if you have the support or if somebody has your back, you just feel more at ease. And I think that's also a big game changer when you're starting a business and not really knowing where it's going to go. So it's pretty amazing. You're working on the concept. If I got the timeline right, August, 2015, and then you officially launched in April, 2016. So there's a lot to talk about there. And one thing I know you've really focused on before even launching was the power of community, right? And ambassadors to get on board. So my question for you is how did you even know where to start, right? Like back then there wasn't a lot of brands that were building community. I would say you were probably one of the earlier ones. So what did that look like for you when the idea of that came to life? Sure. So two things. One is I I kind of knew what I wanted to do from a marketing perspective, but I needed help to do it. And I knew like focus groups and I didn't want a corporation to be built. I wanted a brand to be built. And I wanted that brand to be built by women, not Michelle or Team Lively. And so in doing so, we realized like we needed focus groups. I didn't know how to do focus groups or any of those types of things. So I actually went on LinkedIn (laughs) and I made a list of brands that I thought launched really well. And it was like outdoor voices and Nasty Gal, you know, like Sophia's brand was huge when it first launched, right? And I ended up meeting this fantastic marketer, Nicole Williams, on LinkedIn. I said, I need help. She said, yes. (laughs) We had never met. And she came on and helped me build out strategies to focus group customers. And it was as scrappy as like an Airbnb on the Bowery. Women, 12 to 15 women with one degree of separation, because we didn't want them to be friends or family. They're just going to tell you what you want to hear or just tell you it's a terrible idea because they love you and want you to go get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> True. And those focus groups really showed us that 
you can build a brand with community, but we were really strategic about it. We would get images on a coffee table and say, write down the first word that comes to your mind. And they would put it on a post-it and stick it down. And we would look for trend lines on the words that they were putting on those images. And those words and those post-its led us to the key images that we launched lively with. Same with like undies, for example. Like women don't like to say the word panties in many environments. And they don't want to say underwear because that's more masculine. But women were really comfortable saying undies. We're like, yes, undies it is. So little things like that started by just gathering women saying, we're starting brand X, we want you to be a part of it. And we have wine and cheese. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny because sometimes I think people are always asking, you know, like what's in it for them? What's the incentive? And it feels like even something as simple as wine and cheese and getting women together that they're willing to come and help you. It seems like. Yes. And we gave them credit towards their first lively purchase. We weren't even sure how much the bras were. (laughs) And that actually reminds me, I know before you launched, you put together an email and you're mentioning from the focus group, you really got to understand what words your clients were using, you know, what the branding would be like. And you sent out an email and I would love for you to talk about that email because I think it was pretty pivotal in terms of your official launch of the company. Yes, yes. So like I said, I was really fascinated by Warby Parker Harry's and Casper and Harry's had done a refer a friend campaign when they launched and they garnered 100,000 emails in four weeks. And then they were kind enough to open source that code. And we're like, well, we want emails. I mean, that's the best way to launch is to have that stickiness with a consumer that you could constantly communicate with. So we took Harry's code and put together a scrappy refer a friend campaign. And the campaign was as simple as this. It was for every person that you get to give their email to the Wear Lively splash page, you get a point. And if that is a verified email, those points goes towards your first lively purchase. And so there was no information on the bras or the price of the bras. It was literally just an image of a girl on a a fire escape on the Bowery, like living her best life in our first leisure product. And it was said, inspired by wild hearts and boss brains. And Harry's got a hundred thousand. We were like, well, maybe we'll get 5,000 over four weeks because that was like, that was Harry's. Exactly. (laughs) So we sent this out on a Friday in March, a month before we launched, because we thought we needed four weeks to get 5,000 emails. We emailed 250 people because there was three of us in the office. And that night we got 500 emails. We're like, we're on our way. And then the next morning we had 2,000 emails, then 5,000 emails, then 10,000 emails, then 50,000 emails. And then that night we had like 90,000 emails that were just pouring in. And we thought for sure this, this was not real. Like this was hacked and we didn't build it responsibly. We couldn't actually see what was going on or what credits we're giving. And our developers were like, this is real, but your servers have crashed and everything you built will be really hard to see. And by Sunday morning, we had 133,000 emails. We had 300,000 sessions and 280,000 sessions globally that were unique. And if you looked at Google Analytics map, the world was glowing blue with where lively session hits. Wow. I have goosebumps just hearing that. So we turned on every channel of customer service. 
what do you do? You turn on customer service because you want to know why. Exactly. And what do you think was the driving force, right? Like you mentioned, this email didn't say that you were selling bras necessarily. There was no pricing. It was just refer a friend to get points. What do you think pushed the virality of the email and the referral program? Yeah. I mean, I still to this day can't quite explain it because I constantly get this question. But my gut is that we spent so much time focus grouping and really understanding which was the image? What was the image? Because again, when you think about brand, it's human emotion. And like you see something and you get this like <gasps> flutter and you get excited and then you just can't stop thinking about it. <laughs> and we needed to have that image that gave that flutter and we found it. And then it was those words inspired by wild hearts and boss brains. Like never were words like that uttered next to an image of a woman in a bra looking so powerful. And I think it was just like that, that emotional hook that people were like, yes. And we heard that because when the campaign did go viral, we started to get emails from girls in Australia. They're like, I didn't get a lively email. My friend did in a high school somewhere in Australia. And we're like, what? And they're like, well, yeah, where's my email? Like they were so excited about this brand because how it felt when they saw it. And do you think, you know, I know this was a few years ago, so not that long ago, but do you think those same principles apply to anyone that's looking to do either a product launch or a business launch in 2021? Absolutely. I mean, now more than ever, I think it's more than responsible to ask the community and ask the world what they think before you put something out there with product and sales, right? Because why not? Like your end goal is for thousands of people to buy it. So before you put all of the financial backing behind it, why not ask and get a temperature check and actually pull them in? Because when they have skin in the game, when they care and they feel like they were part of it, they not only buy it, they tell everybody about it. <laughs> yeah. And that's, it's really powerful. The power of word of mouth and looking at the company. Now you have 140,000 ambassadors. I know that's quite a bit, but you know, in those early days, it wasn't like you woke up with that many ambassadors. So I'd love to hear, how did you create that program? And what did it look like when you were getting that first 10, 20, 30 starting out? Sure. I mean, it wasn't people like knocking on our door, banging down our door, but to be an ambassador, it was definitely us reaching out and reaching out in DMs and like tinkering and figuring out the best way to reach out to people, what to say. And we tried email and so forth. And what we learned really was a couple of things. We weren't looking for women that had like a million followers, 10,000 followers, 5,000 followers, none of that. We were looking for women who had great feeds that demonstrated the core values that we had, which was passion, purpose, and confidence. And so you could see by a person's feed that they were passionate about cooking. They were passionate about art, family, business, whatever it was. And then we would say, yes, like this person lives a life of living lively. Like, let's see if they'd be interested in supporting our brand. And it was simple as that. We would DM women that had like 300 followers, 500 followers, a thousand followers. Like it didn't matter about the followers. It mattered that they had content that demonstrated living lively. And we knew that if they had great content like that, that they were probably really vocal in their communities too that they were probably the go-to person, you know, when a friend had a question about where to get something or do something or host something, right? 
you know a go-to. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just started to build quality over quantity. So we had about a hundred by the time we got to April and it was a lot of DMing and then moving them to email, DMing, moving them to email. But we remember that this idea sparked when we started building our Instagram in the end of January, early February. And we posted that same image from the Refer a Friend campaign. And we instantly started getting DMs like, I'd love to support your brand. I love this. What is this? And when someone said, I would love to support your brand, that's when we're like, ah, aha, I get this. This makes sense says the entrepreneur who didn't even have an Instagram account at the time. <laughs> and it was a woman in Chicago named Taylor that she had a ton of followers and she wanted to support this brand. And we're like, right, doesn't need to be someone with that many followers, but just women who we could give content and product and ideas to that could be our grassroots marketing. Incredible. And in those early days, now I'm sure you have a proper system in place where you manage all the ambassadors, but when you're being scrappy, what were some of the community perks? I mean, were you throwing events? Were you giving them credit if they referred? What was the link that you had between these women that you were finding that really embodied the mission? Yes. Yes. I mean, so scrappy. First of all, this whole thing lived in Google Docs for like two years. <laughs> I love, I'm so glad you're saying that because people think things need to be so intricate. It's like just back to the basics to even prove something yeah. out. Yeah. There was nothing fancy about this. This was a Google Doc and it was as simple as, you know, we would have a folder of Dropbox of content because we would say like, you don't even have to take content. We'll deliver content if you just share our mission and what we're about. And we would give them a bra. We would ship them a bra. And we would also host events around things that had nothing to do with bras. And those were very clear rules, like no roses, no carnations, nothing about bras, everything about what they were interested in. And the things they were interested in 2016 were like succulent, soul cycle, calligraphy, entrepreneurship. And that's what our events were about. And what we realized is when we did bring them together for those events, the picture taking and the posting was wild because that's what they were excited about. And that's what they wanted to put on their feeds. And then it was like posted by Lively. Oh, thank you, Lively. Oh, check out Lively. We got a soul cycle class from them check out Lively. They just taught me about succulents. Yeah. And I think you guys have done a really good job, again, just humanizing it and connecting with your members, right? It's like really understanding what are they looking for? How can you cater to them versus using them just as a marketing machine for yourself? So I think that's a really important element for anyone listening, for any brand that they're looking to launch. And one question I have, so I believe it was around eight weeks into launching your business, you had your second kid. So I have so many questions there. And the funny thing is about this podcast, so many women, I've now interviewed over 50 women, probably 60% of them have launched their businesses upon pregnancy or with a newborn. So what was that experience like for you? And was it tough for you to manage, you know, very early days of the business and proving out the concept while having a newborn? And I believe you had another son at home as well. So I had my daughter, Lydia, at home. She was born in January of 2014. So she was just over two when I launched Lively. And then I found out about Jack eight weeks into launch. So, really? you know, eight weeks. Yes. Eight weeks after launching Lively, my rosé didn't taste quite the same on a Friday happy hour. It turns out I was having my son Jack and I was pregnant. And at first it was pretty terrifying. I'm not going to lie. Because mm -hmm. um, I was also one of those 
pregnant mothers who was like really sick when oh, she was when I was pregnant. So like just throwing my head in trash cans left and right. And so it was a combination of like, how am I physically going to be able to do this? Cause it was a ton of adrenaline and you know, that was carrying me through. That's why I didn't even know I was pregnant. I just thought I was tired, but also I was fundraising as well. And I'm like, what do I even tell the investors? Because I'm going to be showing by the time this is like closed. But what I realized is, well, isn't that the whole reason why I started Lively? And so I was like very forthcoming with with all of it. It's like, yes, I'm pregnant. Yes, I'm building a company. And yes, I'm asking you for money. Here I am. (laughs) And how was that received? I mean, I think that's beautiful because it's the reality of life, right? I mean, you can easily still be a mother and run a successful business, but how were people's perception of that? Did everything go as you thought or how was that experience? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the things that we assume and perceive are often false. And thankfully, that was the case for me because I, one, my first investor is a family man and just a wonderful human and was just beyond excited when I told him I was pregnant. And the VC that I brought on understood the values of Lively and that this was part of it. And then my mentor and my third investor, he too was a family man and understood like, yeah, I was not going to slow down. Like if you knew me, you knew that I was probably just going to go faster during pregnancy because the newborn was going to slow me down. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. And I think that's really important to talk about because there are investors and partners around who embody your values that you can align yourself with. And I do think it exists. So just finding the right community around you. And acknowledging the ones that don't get it aren't the right fit. (laughs) Exactly. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine the other day who is going through the fundraising process and was a little sad, right? To get rejections. But when we zoomed out, it just, they weren't the right fit. And I feel like it's so important to find investors and partners you work with who align with your values, who you could see yourself growing with. So I'm glad you found that for yourself because it definitely does exist. So switching gears a little bit, one thing you've talked a lot about is from the get-go, the very beginning of starting Lively, you really always have focused on joy. You talk about how, if you look at the statistics for successful startups, I don't even want to talk about it because it's so disheartening, but it's quite low. And you've always wanted to just have fun and build something you're passionate about. Obviously, there's I'm sure a lot of anxieties that go into that, you know, leaving a very stable job and building a brand from scratch as a first time founder. How did you push through those anxieties or tough moments when you were just getting started? Yeah. I mean, when I looked at the statistics at like how long a startup survives after two years and then five years and 10 years, like forget it's like 90% failure. I just figured, well, the only way I'm going to defy the odds is if I'm going to do it my way and do it differently. And so that's what I did. If I thought about everything I learned, you don't have one retail price for all styles. That's not what you pay a manufacturer. And you don't say like, I'm never going to have markdowns and sale because that's how you move inventory. And more importantly, you don't say I'm going to put brand above all else when you're trying to sell a product. But we did. Like we said, like, yes, our product has an incredible price. We don't want the customers that want us for price. We want brand. And yes, could we distribute to all of these channels? We could, but then Lively wouldn't be the same presentation and the consistent message that we want it to be. And we're still trying to build that. So we're not going to do that. I think 
it's terrifying to say no to opportunities like the ones I just mentioned. And it's it's also terrifying to say no to easy sales by saying like 20% off and 30% off. But I constantly thought about the concept of comps. Whatever you do today, you got to comp next year. And whatever you comp next year, you got to comp five years from then and 10 years from then. You need growth levers. And so if you want to stick around for the long haul, then you got to be patient and disciplined and create something that's actually sticky. So being at a startup previous to Lively and seeing an acquisition-based company that grew super fast was phenomenal. But then when it came to retention, oh, right, they're not coming back. (laughs) So I think it's all about the power of loyalty and stickiness that takes a long time. And now that we're about to celebrate our fifth anniversary, we're finally seeing it. Like we're seeing the fruits of our labor finally come true but it's been five years. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's important to talk about because starting a business and creating a brand takes time. It takes years. I mean, looking back at your journey, clearly you have had somewhat growth year over year, but at what point was it the inflection point? Like I'd love to just kind of hear about your growth trajectory over the years. Yeah. I mean, it was like, okay, we came out the gates like on fire, like very viral. The business was great. And then we comped that by 300%. And then it was like 150%. And then we actually said, okay, we need to really focus on retention and start to build that muscle. And so I would say the third year, we started to really start to push a little bit on retention. And now our fourth year, retention was a big piece of the business. So like literally to set the stage, what we spent marketing last year is basically what we spent in marketing this year, yet we're having double digit growth, almost triple. So that shows brand stickiness in terms of like your repeat customers have now solidified the foundation of your house. And we were able to also acknowledge that they don't want just bras from us. They want swimwear and loungewear and self-care and totes and socks and all sorts of things. That is demonstrating that you can become a brand that touches people's lives in so many ways, like a Ralph Lauren. Mm -hmm. And would you say in terms of creating that retention and creating a broader brand outside of bras and undies, were you engaging with your community to see what they want to really dictate your product pipeline? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like swimwear, for example, was not the idea for year two. But we saw as soon as we launched, we had these palm printed bralettes and bodysuits and our community was wearing them at the beach by the pool. And they were like, please make this in a swimsuit. Please make this in a swimsuit. So we launched it in 2017 only to our community organically. So only to the people whose emails we had and knew lively existed, totally sold out. Wow. So that just showed us, okay, So let's just do this. And we still do it to this day. Five years later, we early access to our VIPs and our brand lovers. And they are always like 40 to 50% of our sales when we launch something new. Wow. Incredible. And I'm sure you can also test to see what they're loving, what they're buying before you open it up to a public. So it's a win-win for everybody. Yeah. I mean, you can just Google survey, like scrappy people. So scrappy. Google survey, print, navy, white, stripe. What do you feel? Yeah. I, you know, I was, I was telling you before the interview, I was listening to one of your Instagram lives talking about brand and you mentioned something you're like, 
people don't talk on the phone as much. Like in the early days, like you got on the phone and talked to people, like, what are you feeling? What do you like? And I think that's a lost art that a lot of people don't do anymore. It's like, just connect with people, understand what they want. So I love that you mentioned that. Hearing someone's voice, like it's just so much nicer than just typed out words. True. <laughs> you can connect. It's so true. FaceTime, phone call, whatever you're feeling. Yeah, exactly. And one thing I want to talk about, you're reaching five years in the business. You actually sold the business, congratulations, a year ago, which is huge. Did you ever envision that exiting or selling the business was going to be the next step for Lively? Because you're just getting started. So how was that experience? Yeah. <laughs> That was not part of the five-year plan <laughs> or three years in, I guess, at the time we sold, but we were always building for the long game. Like I had always envisioned Lively to be something that lived well beyond me, something my daughter could grow up in a world seeing that word lively and knowing like women should feel passionate, purposeful, and confident. And that was a legacy that I just wanted to leave this world. So it wasn't about the exit or the flip. It was like, how do we get this thing to be strong and long lasting and viable, right? You think about like DVF, like how many recessions and economic downturns has she been through and reinvented herself so many times over yet the core values of what she stands for is the same. And that's what I wanted for this brand. So when we were approached by Wacol to buy our company, I was like, what? (laughs) We're not for sale, like we're just getting started. What? <laughs> and so my initial reaction was like, this is too soon. And so the first thing we did was we sat down and had a conversation with them without numbers. We said, we would more than love to discuss, but we want to discuss how do you view the world and how do we view the world and is it the same? And what I think is really powerful is also you're still part of the company, right? You're still leading the operations because we've heard, we've had a lot of entrepreneurs on a podcast who exit are no longer involved and they're very open about, I was depressed. I felt like my identity was gone. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. They lost that sense of purpose, but it seems like you're still fully on board with the company and driving the mission. Yes. Oh my gosh. I feel like the world is is really phenomenal and how things happen when you don't expect them to, but they're purposeful. And so Wacol coming to acquire Lively was purposeful and meant to be in so many ways. But it came at a time where I felt like I was becoming the obstacle in the way of Lively's growth. Because I loved the company so much. I wanted to be a part of everything, everything. But as an entrepreneur, there's a point in which you have to get out of the way and let your team start to build it and let it thrive and grow and breathe. So I joke and I was like, man, I had this three-year-old that went to college. Like I wasn't ready for her to go to college. Like the day that we sold Lively, I had to call my sister-in-law to get like out of the house. I was crushed. I was heartbroken. I was pouring out with tears because I was just like, anyone that has a child, you kind of feel like they're leaving the house. (laughs) They're gone. They're, They're okay without you now. And that is just like a really weird, hard thing to grasp. It actually probably took me a year now looking back mentally to grasp that Lively is going to flourish with or without me. And I need Lively more than Lively needs me. Yeah. Oh, that's so beautiful. And your whole journey, it just shows 
I feel like this company was even got bigger and more successful faster than you even imagined. So you just never know with life, what is going to come your way when you're really living your purpose and you're doing the right thing and you're building in the right way. You just never know what opportunities will come. And I just love your story for that specific reason. It's really inspiring. Yeah. I mean, I think the the story of Wapol has a really interesting part to it, which is they approached us to acquire us. And part of the process is they're publicly owned in Japan. And so I had to go to Japan and meet with the board there and so forth. And I had this wonderful opportunity to go through the history of Wakol. And they have this museum in Kyoto where the board meeting was held. And so they showed me through the museum and we got to, we actually went from present to past. And we, when we got to where the founder started Wakol in 1950s, I want to say, the first logo that he drew was this watermark that literally is the same shape of the watermark of life. Are you serious? Oh my God. And I mean, I couldn't breathe for a second when I saw it. I was like, what? I was like, why do you guys have our logo here? And they're like, no, 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 no. This is what he drew. When he saw Wakol, which was the idea of beauty and balance. And he created this brand because he saw that women in Japan were transitioning from traditional Japanese kimonos to more Western wear. And if they were going to wear Western, more Western looks, they needed a bra. And that's why he created Wakol so that they could feel supported and confident and amazing. And in that moment, all by myself in Japan with these wonderful people from Wakol, I knew in my stomach that this was meant to be. Wow. That, what a beautiful feeling. I probably would have like cried there being like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's full circle. That is awesome. Yes. You know, one question I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, as someone who built and is scaling a business, I'm sure you mentor a lot of entrepreneurs. What do you think are some of the key challenges or key mistakes that women startup entrepreneurs are doing in their businesses today? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I think, one, I think we play it too safe. As women, we want all the answers and we want to know if I do this, what will happen? Guess what? (laughs) The best way to live is my new mantra is to live in beta. Live in beta and know that you don't know what the outcome is, but the more risks you take, the better that you're going to be at taking risks. And the more flexible and agile you become mentally, the stronger you're going to get at just trying. So like you're going to get to the point where things don't feel like risks. They just feel like you're trying something. But because we're so risk adverse, naturally, we color between the lines where the boys are climbing the trees and they know mom's going to catch them. We're always just for some reason feeling like we have to have the answers, the cushion and the backup plan. But you don't. (laughs) So I would say is like live outside of the lines and try, try, try and know the greater the risk you take sooner like I call it the learning tax, pay the learning tax early versus later than when it's big. Like the mistakes that I made early and lively, I always look back. I'm like, yes, thank God I made that in year one and two, not in year five. <laughs> I love that. That is a really powerful point. And you know, for anyone listening, it's just even doing uncomfortable things on a daily basis. It doesn't have to be massive. It's like, that's where you start is just slowly pushing yourself outside the comfort zone and being comfortable with risk. So I think that's a really great point. And one question that we love to ask all of our guests upon closing is wealth means so much more than money. And everybody has their own definition of wealth at this stage in your life. What does the word wealth mean to you? I would say it means living a life of fulfillment. 
I think it took me a long time to understand the difference between happiness and fulfillment. Happiness is like quick fix. Like I got a new shirt and it makes me so happy. And then like a couple of times after wearing it, not as happy, but fulfillment I realized is the time that I get to spend with my children, having breakfast with them in the morning and then walking them to school. It's time with the people I love is my form of fulfillment in connection with building a business, building a brand and seeing other women do the same. Like my life of fulfillment is being able to do both. I get to be with the people I love and I get to do what I love. And that to me is wealth. That's beautiful. Thank you, Michelle, for joining us today. I could talk to you for days. I so appreciate you being with us. Thank you. Thank you. This was so much fun. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.